You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Karen Ann Quinlan, Nancy Cruzan, Terry Schiavo. Who will be next? Bill Colby is one of the nation's foremost legal experts on the topic of the perplexing legal, ethical, medical, and personal dilemmas at the heart of the 30-year-old right-to-die debate. He's an expert on dying and the law. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is attorney Bill Colby. Bill Colby is the lawyer who represented the family of Nancy Cruzan in the first right-to-die case heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. He worked on legislation which eventually became federal law, the Patient Self-Determination Act. A senior fellow with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization in Washington, D.C., he is the author of The Long Goodbye, The Deaths of Nancy Cruzan, and Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America. He traveled to all corners of the United States last year talking about dying and the law. Bill Colby, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. Good to be with you, Susan. Summarize what happened with Karen Ann Quinlan, Nancy Cruzan, and Terry Schiavo. Well, that's a big question. Karen Ann Quinlan, I'm always struck as uh, I go around and, and talk on these topics by how many people do not remember her name at this point, because for those of us uh, 50 and over, she is one that, that strikes a chord for all. Uh, she was a young woman in uh, the mid-1970s who went into cardiac uh, arrest uh, one evening after being out with friends, rushed to the hospital, and ultimately her parents came to the determination that she was not going to emerge back to consciousness, and they went to court to seek removal of her respirator, the very first one of these cases to go to court in 1975, and the New Jersey Supreme Court ultimately gave her parents permission to remove her respirator uh, when it was removed, she ended up breathing on her own and lived another 10 years, dying in 1985 from pneumonia. Her case was the first time that our society confronted the question of medical technology advancing to the point where it could bring us back from the brink of death, but unfortunately not all the way back. The Nancy Cruzan case happened in the mid-1990s or at the Supreme Court in 1990, and it was the only time the U.S. Supreme Court tackled this issue. Uh, In Cruzan, the Supreme Court ruled uh, for the first time that all of our listeners, conscious, competent adults, have a right under the federal Constitution to make decisions about their own medical treatment. Court had never said that before, and the Terry Schiavo case obviously uh, was in the news last uh, couple of years uh, dealing with, unlike Cruzan and Quinlan, dealing with a situation where you have the parents and a husband of a young woman in a vegetative state uh, at odds about whether or not her uh, treatment should be continued. All of these women were diagnosed as being in this condition called a persistent vegetative state, a condition brought on by advances in medical technology, uh, portable defibrillators, EMTs being trained, learning in the late 60s, this newly written about uh, technique called CPR, written about in JAMA in 1960. Doctors were seeing more and more of these patients uh, whose uh, brain stems, which, as your audience knows, uh, can go much longer without oxygen and survive, patients uh, whose brain stem had survived 
an accident or illness, but whose upper sinking part of the brain, which after just four to six minutes suffers permanent damage, was not able to survive. And as doctors saw more and more of these patients uh, in 1972, it was written about in the medical literature in Lancet, uh, and the, the syndrome was named the persistent uh, vegetative state. What changes have happened in the United States because of these cases? In the wake of all three cases, we certainly saw activities in state legislatures and at the federal level with uh, legislators try to address the issues of, of our day. So when the cases were in the news, in the wake of Quinlan, many states passed uh, these laws, which were brand new at the time, called living will laws. Uh, one lawyer in Chicago in about 1970, seeing the advance of medical technology, came up with the idea of writing down if I'm in a coma, I would not want a respirator. He called it a living will. In 76, right after Karen Quinlan uh, was in the news, California became the first state to pass a living will law. Uh, in the wake of the Cruzan case, we had the Patient Self-Determination Act, which came out of the federal Congress, which provides that when any of us are in a hospital, we're told about advanced care planning. And now in the wake of the Terry Schiavo case, we're seeing many state legislatures looking at all kinds of different laws, both updating their living will and power of attorney laws, issues like out-of-hospital DNR orders and that type of thing. But in a significant way, the, the cases, though they took place in the context of the court system, they were not about the law. They were more about societal discussion and how we resolve in, our, in a democratic society the most complicated questions that that we face. And I, I think the great legacy of the three cases, rather than being about the law or, or in addition to the law, is that it caused our greater society for an extended period of time, as these stories were in the national news, it caused the rest of us to stop and talk for a bit about a topic that we don't easily talk about. So there was a legal legacy, certainly, but I think even greater, there was the social legacy. And, and just to finish that answer, as an example, with the Terry Schiavo case, at the uh, National Hospice website, uh, one website from one not-for-profit where you can download free state documents and free state advice, they have had in the last two years almost 4 million visitors to that single website and almost a million downloaded living wills and powers of attorney for healthcare. So there is a good to come out of these unbelievably tragic stories because it causes the rest of us to stop and talk. Do you recommend a living will or a durable power of attorney for health care? I, I do not have a living will my, myself. I have only the power of attorney for health care. I think in many ways they are easier for people to understand, and they're the more effective document. A living will anticipates conditions you might have and treatments you might, or, uh, might not want in a certain condition, and often they have boxes to check. I think people find those pretty daunting. I recommend to people that they fill out the simpler document, simply naming, if you can't speak, here's who speaks for you, the durable power of attorney for health care. But then you've got to take two additional steps. You need to talk with that person about your views and your values so that you can arm them to be your advocate in the medical system in whatever way. It might be for additional care, different care, talking with the medical providers so they know and have an idea of your views and values. And then third and critical, you need to reach out to all the other people in your social circle and tell them about your discussion with the person you've named as your health care agent so that they'll be supportive at the time decisions 
are made rather than a hindrance. Doctors everywhere I go who deal in this area have the story of the adult child who flies in from somewhere distant and he's going to repair his relationship with his mother by pointing his finger at the doctor and saying to her, I, I don't care what my sister says, you do everything for my mother. And to me, that's just about family communication you, and, and doctors advocating to family to do that hard communication ahead of time, I think, give good advice to people. And I should have said a second ago, but the National Hospice website has some great advice, both for doctors and consumers, to, to help lead them through this discussion. It's uh, at caringinfo.org, C-A-R-I-N-G-I-N-F-O.org. Good website, good free resource. In your book, Unplug, you discuss the evolution of CPR and a review of the TV show ER and two other medical shows showing that CPR was not necessarily as effective as we might think. Yeah, that that was a study that was in the New England Journal, uh, which looked at ER and a couple of other shows and CPR is a great example of showing how our understanding of these issues is really just beginning. So just let me, let me back up. 1966 was when the National Academy of Sciences and National Research Council recommended that doctors begin learning the technique of CPR that was described in JAMA just a few years before that. So 66 was when that began. 69 was the first successful out-of-hospital defibrillation. In 1983, President's Commission on bioethics issued a report on end-of-life care. In that report in 83, it indicated that three state medical societies by that point had adopted something called a DNR policy. So in 83, the whole idea of DNR, do not resuscitate, was so new that it was just starting to make its way into the medical societies. We were so busy trying to figure out the R part of it, the resuscitation, the idea of do not was still a a long way off. And in the same year that that was written, 83, New York was one of the medical societies that had adopted a policy. The uh, district attorney in Queens down in the city was doing a criminal investigation on a hospital that had put in place a DNR policy because he believed they were killing patients by not performing fetal CPR. So we were just learning. And then you get to the point of today where many legislatures are looking at the idea of -of out-of-hospital DNR policies and, and how you manage that. And you think about where they're getting their knowledge. The New England Journal's looking at how people perceive the effectiveness of CPR. On Thursday nights on ER, it's uh, effective, I think, about 75% of the time uh, to the point where people walk out of the hospital within the context of a one-hour show. The reality in the medical literature is obviously much less than that, that CPR is effective to leave the hospital uh, in about 15% of the cases. But most of the public, when surveyed, of course, believe ER, and our legislators are part of the public. So, so the education is really, is really just happening, and I think in the medical world, too. I, I ask when I speak at Grand Rounds, when it's mostly doctors, for, at times I will ask this question, why in this hospital do you perform what, what you know is futile, uh, full code on an 80-year-old, frail, elderly patient with a variety of organs involved in her illness. Why do you perform a full code on this patient when you know it's not medically indicated? The first reaction is almost universally fear of litigation. And I'm a lawyer. I I understand our litigious society. But as we work through that a little bit, 
everybody comes to agree that there isn't a great litigation for, in fact, there's none, for failing to perform unnecessary CPR on the frail elderly. And, and as we walk through it, we eventually get to the point that the, the answer is it's it simply evolved to be the process that we do in this hospital. It's part of, it's almost part of our our dying process here. So even in the medical setting, we're, we're just having this discussion now about when, when we don't use CPR and, and uh, how we perhaps have a uh, some kind of palliative care counsel or, or other approach so that our last hours are not spent uh, in, the, in the ICU in a place that we said we did not want to be. Bill Colby, thank you for joining us today to discuss dying in the law. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.